Well, I've been listening to the History of Rome podcast lately. <laughs> and uh, sounds like a geeky type of thing that someone like me would do. And, uh, you know, for my whole life, I've always thought, wouldn't it be good to know about all the Roman emperors and, you know, kind of the back backstory behind the Bible? The history of the Roman Empire is kind of a long one. And the History of Rome podcast, which is a great podcast, is a long podcast. So I just went, went up to Julius Caesar and started there because that's kind of, you know, the start of the, the Rome that we often think of. And I've just gone through to the fall of Rome, listened to 100 episodes, covered all of that, and super interesting. So I'd love to tell you so much stuff, but I will not do that. <laughs> but I discovered this interesting thing that I kind of knew about, but it's come alive in a whole new way. And it's the whole Roman adoption process, which keeps appearing over and over and over again in Roman society. You've all heard of Julius Caesar, right? And if you hadn't, well, maybe some of the young ones here have read those Asterix and Obelix comics, and Julius Caesar is in those. He always managed to get, get defeated by the Gauls. That never happened in real life, by the way. In real life, he whopped the Gauls. <laughs> But uh, anyway, Julius Caesar is where I was, I was introduced to him reading Asterix comics as a kid. And uh, Julius Caesar could never ever quite do it. But in real life, he was a great general, conquered a huge big chunk of the world, added it to the Roman Empire, clearly one of the greatest generals of all time, maybe second after Alexander the Great, up there. And then, you know, he got murdered. And, uh, but he was right up there as kind of dictator. Not emperor, dictator in charge of the whole Roman Empire, and he got murdered, and he never had an heir. He didn't have anyone in line to kind of step up and be the next person to take over. Didn't have any kids. He actually did have a kid, but that kid didn't live there. He lived in Egypt. And um, so what was going to happen? Well, they went into this certain place where they keep the will. The people have their will. You know how when someone dies, you break out their will? They broke out the will of Julius Caesar and discovered to their surprise that he was posthumously adopting someone. Now when we adopt people, we adopt them when they're little tiny kids and we adopt them because we want to have a baby. You know, like we, we meet people that sometimes they can't have children so they adopt a little baby and they want to raise it as their child. Or sometimes you meet people that have got children but they want to adopt another one. So that's the type of adoption we're used to you know, you adopt a baby. But Julius Caesar adopted a fully grown adult in his will after his death. Now, you may have heard of this guy. His name was Augustus. Well, his name was actually Octavian, but he's the person we know as Augustus Caesar. And when Jesus was born, it talks in Matthew's Gospel about at the time of Augustus, Augustus ordered this, you know, census or something like that. Well, that's the guy. That's Augustus, who was a fully adult male, a military guy involved in politics, but suddenly discovered as an adult that, oh, I've just been adopted in Julius Caesar's will. I'm now the son of Julius Caesar. Isn't that a strange thing? Now, it's always nice when you get a letter out of the blue that says your distant relative has just died and left you a gigantic fortune in their will. Wouldn't you like that to happen? That type of surprise is wonderful because you suddenly get this huge fortune to spend however you like. That's not what happened to Augustus. 
His adoption into the Julius family definitely brought him a huge fortune, but it wasn't what you're thinking. You see, when someone gives you something, an inheritance in their will, it's yours to do with as you wish, because that's how inheritances and wills work for us. But no, when Octavian was adopted as an adult by Julius Caesar, he became a son, and he now had obligations. It wasn't just, I get the wealth and I get to do with it what I want. No, this is now the son of the man that had ruled the Roman Empire, and now he had obligations, expectations. He had rights, but he had responsibilities. And you know what? He had to decide whether he even wanted to do that or not. It wasn't just automatic. He had to choose to accept it, and he did. There was a whole procedure for doing that. He had to go down to a certain temple in Rome and accept it. There was a ceremony, and he was now Octavius Caesar. Now, Caesar was like the family name. He now became a part of that family as rigid did as if he was born into that family. The inheritance and the wealth was his, but so was the responsibility for carrying on the family name, for doing the other things that were in the will of Julius Caesar. And of course, he ended up 13 years later becoming the first Roman emperor. He didn't just automatically become emperor. He was also a unique and, and very clearly thinking man who ended up having to work through a lot of challenges to become the first Roman emperor. All very interesting stuff, including battles in the city of Philippi with Mark Anthony and all sorts of stuff went on, sea battles at Actium. Lots of interesting things happened, but he would never have got to become the first emperor unless he had become adopted, the adopted son of Julius Caesar. So all of that is super interesting. Now we all want an inheritance. We always want someone to die and leave us a bucket load of cash or properties. We think that sounds great. That's our Western way of viewing inheritances. And, um, but, and of course, we have an, an idea of adoptions as, as being adopting children. But Roman adoptions kind of combine the two ideas together, but in a different way to what we think about. And if you go and do a Google or a Bible search for the word adoption, you'll see that it appears in the Bible in a bunch of different places. But whenever you read about adoption in the Bible, it's not the type of adoption you're thinking about. It's the type of adoption like what I just described, like Julius Caesar adopting an adult. Now, I thought that is kind of cool because the benefit of adopting an adult is you get to know how they turn out, right? You know, if I was going to adopt someone and it was an adult, I'd look around for a pretty good person to adopt, right? Now, the, the problem with that is I might find someone pretty fancy and say, I want to adopt you, and they might look at me and say, well, I don't like you, so I don't want you to adopt me. So in practice, it only tended to be very wealthy people that adopted other really good quality people. So that's an, and it tended to be that poor people didn't adopt. First of all, no one wanted to be adopted by a poor person. But second of all, poor people didn't have anything to pass on, so no one wanted it. And um, no one wanted to carry on the obligations of maintaining a poor person's family. They had their own worries to, to worry about without worrying about some other poor bloke. So it tended to be just the wealthy that would adopt. They would typically only adopt males, but they did adopt females as well. 
And I'm pretty sure that Augustus later on adopted um, the daughter of the woman he married. Roman families were very complicated. But Augustus Caesar actually did end up adopting a female and there was, that was wonderful for her in, in, in all the things that it meant. That's another story. But in the family of God, we're adopted, it turns out. You've got to, you've got to really get your head around all that this means because it's kind of bigger than what I've, kind of, what I've been able to wrap my own head around. Romans would only adopt people of quality that they thought would enhance their family reputation, enhance their family line, carry on their family lineage, you know, prestige and social class, all these were big deals. So Julius Caesar adopted Octavian because he was already a, a significant human being. He'd already got accomplishments under the belt. He was someone that would, you know, carry on the name in honour. But I think to myself, the Lord Jesus adopted us. The first thing that occurs to me, he's not getting very much out of it. We often do a terrible job of carrying the Lord's name. We haven't got great accomplishments to our name. We're sinful from birth. We must be a disgrace to the name of the Lord. There's nothing appealing about adopting us and it's not like the Lord adopted us at birth and then found out later, oh, I've made a bad choice. No, the Lord knows what we're like and chooses to adopt us anyway. All of these things are quite remarkable when you think them through. Now, I thought to myself, how, would you, how could you equivalent this? Or, you know, make an equivalent of this? Equivitate this? What's the word? There's a word there. How could you represent this in our modern society? And I'm still not sure that I've got a great example of it. But imagine that someone significant in society decided to adopt you as an adult right now. Let's say, I couldn't think of any examples that everyone would like. So let's just pick an example that only some people will like. Donald Trump, right? He's an, a, a name that evokes mixed responses, but if he suddenly announced, I'm adopting, and he, you know, it's you. He announces your name in public and all around the world, on you know, news medias, Donald Trump adopts this person and it's you. What do you think everyone who reads that news article is going to think? Because you've not been adopted as a child, you've been adopted as an adult. Everyone's going to think, they're going to expect that certain things are going to happen to you, right? They're not going to assume that, oh, you're just getting all Donald Trump's money and that's it. No, they're going to think there's a plan and a purpose in this. Donald Trump has just adopted you as his heir for a reason. Donald Trump's old, he's going to die within the next de decade. You're going to carry something on. People are just going to assume that that's the case. Let's bring it a bit more Christian than that. Let's say in the final years of Billy Graham's life, he adopted you and it was published in ChristianityToday.com and it went all around the world. Every church in the world knew. Let's say it was me. David Alley was adopted by Billy Graham as an adult son in the final years of Billy Graham's life. The whole world knows. Billy Graham's now dead and I'm the son of Billy Graham. 
What would you think of me as the son of Billy Graham? What would you expect that I would do with my life? How would you expect me to act? Would I just continue on doing the life the way I want to live it? Or would I now change? Because I'm now in a different family and I now have a different father. I think everyone would expect that I would change and I would know that and I would try to change. And I'd probably never be anywhere near as good as Billy Graham, but I'd try to be like him. So this, this is the type of thing we're talking about with adoptions in the Bible. So let's go to the scriptures and let's read Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 to 5. <coughs> Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. Before the creation of the world, he chose you and adopted you. So he knew completely what you were going to be like because he knows all things. And it was predestined. In other words, he knew completely the type of person you would be and he determined he was going to choose you to be adopted into his family. And that's no doubt the reason why he has blessed you with every spiritual blessing. That whole passage there in Ephesians going through to verse 10 and 11 talks about all the things that God's doing for you because you've been adopted into his family. It's a remarkable passage. Octavian did not expect to be adopted. One day, Julius Caesar was dead. The next day, his will got read out in public and he had the shock of his life. There was a ceremony and people saw him from that point on and he was a Caesar from that moment on. But he had to accept it. He thought about it and he said, now, and by the way, his mother, and I've forgotten what her name is, she pleaded with him to not accept it. His mother pleaded, do not accept the adoption. So he was torn between what seemed like a great honour and a privilege and a responsibility and his mother who was convinced that if he accepted that he would be murdered too. Because Roman society was chaotic and un unpredictable and his mother thought, you accept that, they're coming after you. Which, as it turns out, quite a lot of people were coming after him once he accepted that. Life was unpredictable for him. But for us, now, if we accept this adoption into God's family, should we do it or should we not? Well, if we do it, what will happen to us? Will there be unexpected things in life? Yes. Will there be anyone coming after you? Well, no doubt the devil won't like it. And you may have some spiritual warfare at times that you've got to fight through. Maybe there'll be people in the world that don't like Christians and there'll be some persecution. That might happen as well. But will you say no because of those things? Of course not. You're going to accept the adoption of none other than the Son of God. 
be, to be adopted into the family of heaven is the greatest privilege that you can be offered. Of course you're going to accept it if you're in your right mind. And you accept it with a conscious choice. Now, some of you have already accepted it without knowing that's what you were doing. That's what happened to me. When I was a child, I asked Jesus into my life. I was born again. I had no idea I was accepting my adoption into God's family. Probably you did that too. Many of you would have done that and had no idea that that's what you were doing. But for some of you, you've never made that choice. And some of you just didn't know that's the choice that you were making. You didn't understand the implications of it. But this morning, we're going to finish in a, in a few minutes by consciously making that choice. If you've made it before, you're just going to accept it with the awareness of what it is. And if you've never made the choice to make the Lord your God and Saviour, this morning you'll have that opportunity to choose the adoption that's being offered to you. With this adoption will come purpose for your life. Because now your life means something. You're now going to serve the Lord. You're not serving you, yourself any longer. You might be saying to yourself, you know what, my life sucks. My life's not working out the way I want it to go. Things are going terrible for me. Well, if that's the case, it's because you're trying to live life your way. But when you accept what the Lord puts in front of you, you now take on his life and the purpose he gives to you. So therefore, we don't complain about it anymore because we're not serving ourselves anymore. We're serving our Father in heaven. Along with that comes privileges because we've been given every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. We've been given authority. You know, as the emperor, Augustus had a lot of authority. When you are accepted into the family of God, it turns out you've got a lot of authority in that place. You can pray prayers, you can see things change. It comes with authority. It comes with power, the ability to make a difference. So why wouldn't you use that ability and actually pray some prayers? Let's go to Romans chapter 8. Let's go to Romans 8, 14 to 19. Just before we read that, I was thinking, you know, in the Roman method of adoption, in the case, in the example of Julius and Octavian, Julius died and Octavian had to carry on behalf of his father on his own. But something interesting happens when God adopts people. He doesn't die. Now, I know Jesus did die for us, but he's been resurrected back to life and he's an eternal father to us. In fact, the Bible even calls him everlasting father. That comes from the book of Isaiah. So you're kind of an heir, but you're ruling at the same time that your father is also ruling. It'd be a bit like Julius Caesar still being the dictator of Rome and Augustus being the emperor of Rome all at the same time. Both of them ruling, co-reigning. So that would make us co-heirs, right? Heirs at the same time. Well, let's read. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. 
The spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship, and by him we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are God's children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. So it says here that we are no longer slaves, but we are now sons and we're co-heirs with Christ. So Christ is reigning, God the Father is reigning, and we're reigning along with Christ, but God's reigning as well. So we've been caught up into it all because of our adoption. Did anyone here ever see the movie Ben-Hur? Now, I think some of the younger people may not have experienced how wonderful Ben-Hur is. And there's a modern remake of Ben-Hur which is pretty good. Do not watch the modern remake of Ben-Hur until you watch the old Ben-Hur first. Because ju you just won't appreciate the old Ben-Hur if you watch it after the new Ben-Hur. The new one's got all modern, ma magical, CGI, all of that. But the old original Ben-Hur, they actually had 5,000 humans in the chariot race because you couldn't fake them. So the old original Ben-Hur is a fantastic movie about Roman times and in that movie, the man called Ben-Hur is a slave. He's on the galley ships but he gets adopted by the guy who owned the ship. The guy that owned the ship is sinking and drowning. Ben-Hur leaps into the ocean and saves his life, and as an appreciation for that, the admiral of that ship grants him freedom from slavery and adopts him as an adult. So now, Ben-Hur becomes an actual citizen of Rome. Actually, he straight away goes from being in a slave situation, brought straight into a royal family with wealth and inheritance and position. That from slavery to citizenship thing, that's what we're talking about. No longer are you slaves. And the guy that made the Ben-Hur movie, by the way, was a Christian. Um, I'm pretty sure he was a preacher from memory. And he put things in those Ben-Hur movies, and that's what's so good about the old one, is Jesus is in the old one. But in the new one, they got Jesus. They got rid of Jesus because you know, they, you know, the, these modern movie makers. They, we just need some modern movie makers that appreciate Jesus. Pray for that. Pray for Steven Spielberg types of people to just, you know, raise up who love the Lord, who can make movies about good, good things. Why not? Why not pray for that? And uh, yeah, go ahead and watch the new Ben Hur after you've seen the old one. Except keep in mind, in the real story, Jesus is in it. And uh, he's the best part of the story, actually. And so we have been taken from slavery, adopted into God's family. Now we're a citizen. We're brought up equal with Jesus Christ. That's unbelievable. I just think that's incredible. And then it says in verse 18, I consider our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Now, if you're equal to Jesus because you've been adopted, you should at least be treated as good as Jesus, right? You should at least expect that your life will be as, 
as, as equivalently good and wonderful as Jesus. Well, we all know what happened to Jesus, right? He went to the cross and he suffered on our behalf. We ought to expect that if God calls you to a little bit of suffering in life, it's okay. That's a part of it too. That's part of the responsibility and the privilege of being a co-heir with Christ. Jesus knew that there was responsibilities of being a part of this family of God and there were privileges. He knew about them both and he did not shirk from his responsibilities and he didn't even do them begrudgingly. It's not like kids that wash the dishes at night because they have to. It's like me, when I wash the dishes, I do it with great joy because I'm serving my family, plus it's about the only time in life you get a few minutes to yourself. So great joy can be found in doing the dishes. And Jesus went to the cross, not begrudgingly, but with great joy. And I, and I think we should embrace the difficulties of life with great joy because we're co-heirs with Christ. When something happens to you, when someone complains about you, grumbles or complains, a colleague at work, someone, you know, a neighbour is mean to you because you're a Christian, someone parks in front of your driveway and won't let you out on purpose, just rejoice with, you know, genuine sincerity because you're a co-heir with Christ and the present sufferings you're going through are nothing compared to the glory that you have received, adopted into God's family, why should you let a little thing like someone parking you in spoil your day? You should not. But um, unfortunately, we all don't think that being in God's family is that special. Well, we just don't have a big enough picture of all that it means. What it means is this. You're called to serve. You're called to represent the name of God. You're called to suffer. You know, don't go chasing it, but if it comes along, you know, you accept it. Some Christians go chasing suffering. I personally think avoid it at all costs. I think, and even Jesus seemed to be suggesting that, you know, if they, you know, if they chase you in one city, flee to another kind of thing. Just go, you know, avoid it if, wherever possible. But if it happens to catch up to you, then embrace it with joy because it's the Lord's will for you, and somehow out of that suffering will come a better thing. And of course, knowing all the while you're in the best family that there is. Sometimes kids at school, they say things like, my dad's better than your dad. Well, don't get caught up in those arguments, but just be mindful of the fact you've been adopted into the best family of all. Your dad is better than any other dad that there is. We're going to read Romans chapter 1, uh, not Romans, John chapter 1 verse 12 to 13. Um, Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God. So if you accept him, you become his children, and I just have to say that you, when you become a child of God, you're a real child of God. We've got this idea in our mind that if you're adopted, you're not a real child. We somehow think that our only biological children are real children. 
and then we think adopted children are not real children. You know, yeah, they're real, but they're not real. We've got this kind of distinction in our mind. There was no distinction like that at all in the Roman mind. And in the mind of the Bible, when this was written, there's no distinction like that. Think about it for a minute. When a child is born to you, you don't know who you're going to get. They could be a great human, or they could be a rat bag, or you could have some influence on them, and hopefully they could be a better person because of you. But you don't have any say in the matter. You don't, know, you don't have a choice if they're male or female. You don't have a choice if they're going to be born healthy or born with a terrible disease. There's a lot of things outside your control. But when God reaches down and chooses you, fully aware of who you are, now that's a real child right there. Because there's intent. There's choice. There's knowing who he's going to get. And there's a deliberate willingness to add you to the family that's as real a child as you can get. In fact, in Roman society, if you didn't like your children, you could get rid of them. You could kill them. You were allowed to do that. But if you adopted a child, you were not allowed to get rid of them. And you know what's the difference? At least I think. The difference is that when you choose someone, you already know what they're like. I think that's a big part of it. There's something about the adoption process which is as real, as real, as real. So don't think, oh, yeah, he's called us to be his children, but we're not really his children. Yeah, Jesus, he's the real son. It's kind of just nice language. And No, you're a real child of God. It's as real as it can get. You're a brother or sister of Christ, co-heirs with Christ. It's as 100% Fair income, it's fact. So it all just boils down to whether you believe it or not. Now we're about to conclude this sermon, but I'm just going to add a little thought in here that's a bit of a twist. And it's, we'll just go back to that Ephesians 1, 3, 4, 5 verse that we had at the beginning. Or 4 and 5 will be fine. Yep. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight in Love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. Over the years in this church, you've heard a lot of preaching about sonship. That's an interesting little twist right there, I think. Now, maybe you don't get the twist, but what have we always said that sonship is? We've always said... That sonship is, you know, you're now the son of God, which includes all the ladies. You're the sons of God. But in practice, what does it mean? In the earth. It means... It, it, some people think that I'm the son of God, I don't need people. They don't apply it to the real world. And that's been the message of the sonship. The sonship message that has been preached here for a long, long time is about how we apply it in the church, in real life, with people around us. Sonship is bringing you into a family of real people. So God is your father, yes. Jesus is your co-heir and brother, yes. But that's not where it stops. Michael mentioned before in his communion message, it was an interesting point, that when you go to a sports event or a theatre or something, you've got nothing in relation with all the people around you. But when you come to church, you have a connection with these people because they're your family. When you're adopted into Christ and you come to this position of sonship, what you've got is a new family. So the people that you're sitting next to in church are your family. 
and you need to show the, the due love, respect, kindness, patience, all the things that Jesus teaches us towards the people around you because they're your family. So you don't come into this new family because you're adopted in but still act like an individual. You know, you've got leaders in the church. I'm not saying this because I'm a leader and I want you all to be nice to me, although, you know, I do want you to be nice to me. But we treat our leaders with respect. We have a teachable attitude towards them. We have an open heart towards them. We want to serve and love. And, you know, they're supposed to lead, but you follow so that together we can go somewhere. That's a sonship attitude. And then your attitude towards each other. Imagine I was adopted into Billy Graham's family, but I couldn't stand Franklin Graham. Oh, I love Billy, but Franklin, huh, don't like him at all. Well, you know, that wouldn't be the way it should work. You would expect that you're adopted into a family and you would work with the family because that's, you're in that new family, it should be harmonious, cooperative. The family should be stronger because of your addition to it, not weaker. So when you're adopted into Christ, you're not, you don't, you're not in this new position with an individual brain, like it's just me and God and no one else. It's not like that. It's you and God and everyone else in the church with you and together you're a family. You work with them. You keep an open heart to them. You serve together. There's a lot more things to be said about sonship and we have a lot of messages on our YouTube channel about sonship. So you're adopted into sonship. That's an interesting angle on all of this. So, you have a position. You are positioned in heaven with Jesus, but you're positioned here on earth as well. You have responsibilities. You have responsibilities to God in heaven, but your responsibilities work out on the earth, right here and now. You serve God, but you serve God by serving people. You love God, but you love God through your love for people. So it's all happening in two places. It's happening above and it's happening below as well. I'm going to invite the band to come. And in a minute, we're going to re-sing that song, Christ is Enough for Me. I thought that was a good song. And so my question to you is, will you accept your adoption into God's family? Some of you are already in God's family. But what we're doing this morning is consciously thinking about it and I guess maybe you're, you're accepting it in its fullness because maybe you've accepted the privileges but not accepted the responsibilities. You think that your life is all about you. So you write your family will and it's all about what you want to happen with the things that you've worked hard for and the things you earn and you're thinking only about your plans but you never thought about God's plans. Or maybe you're younger and you're, you've got your life before you and you're planning it out. I'm going to do this, I'm going to go to uni, and then I'm going to get married, and then I'm going to work hard, and then I'm going to get A, B, and C. And you've got your whole life plan, but if you're adopted into God's family, what about his plan? What about serving his family name? What about the purpose he has for you? So you've got to accept the responsibilities of his name. You're now a Christian. So your name, you know in the Roman world it would be 
His name was Gaius Octavius, but then he became Gaius Octavius Caesar. And later he became, you know, they have this naming process. And when you get adopted into a family, the name gets added on. So my name was David Alley, but now it would be David Alley Christus. You should add on the name of Christ. Nolus Patsus Christus. Philip, Philippius Alius Christus. So you add on the name Christus to your name, and now you're not an alley anymore. I mean, you are still an alley, or you're still a, a Patson, or you're still a Cyrus, or whatever, but you're now a Christus. So you've got that name added on. Now that's your family. And don't think, oh, that's just metaphorically my family, but no, this. No, it's not metaphorically your family. It's your real family. God only made families in the world so you could learn about the real family. People always get these things back to front. The thing that God made is the real thing. The things that we experience are to help us learn about the real thing. Marriage is something we experience to help us learn about the real type of relationship that God intended in heaven between him and the church. That's the real thing. Marriage is just to give us some kind of an inkling of what that's like. Families that you live in now, they're all imperfect. There's no perfect family, but they give you a sense of the real type of family that's supposed to exist. When you're adopted into God's family, that's the real thing. So yes, your name is Christus. Dennis Christus, that's your name. You've got an earthly name that people know you by, but your name is Christus. You're in the family of Christ. So all that remains is, are you going to join the family, accept the adoption, with the uncertainties and the potential sufferings and the responsibilities, as well as the privileges, the joys, the authority and the power, plus, of course, all your fellow family members. Are you going to accept that, or are you going to say no? Normally, I would say, and what we're going to do is you're going to accept it by standing up because there's way too many people and I think most of you are going to say yes. So I can't have you all at the front because there's not enough room. Normally we would call people out the front, but today I'm going to ask you to stay seated for the song unless you choose to accept the name of Christ. And the name of Christ means um, you're following him the way he thinks it means to follow him, not the way you think it means to follow him. So it's like the disciples following Christ, laying down their fishing boat and following. So we're going to sing. And as we sing, if you, if you want to, you know, you look back on your life, you say, you know, I did accept Christ, and that is really what I intended to do, stand. If you've never known anything about this before, this is the first time you've ever thought about it, and you're deciding whether to accept Christ or not, stand. And if you're in that second category, I'd like to pray with you afterwards, or some of the leaders would like to pray with you afterwards. So when the service is finished, just come and see me so that we can pray with you. So we're going to sing, and then you can have a chance to stand. And then at the end of that song, I'm going to have a prayer of blessing for you.